You are listening to a message from Victory Alabang. Get the latest updates by visiting victoryalabang.org or like us on facebook.com slash victoryalabang. We are on our third topic and final series of uh, Story of Us. This is really our story, but this deals with a very special branch of theology called Biblical Anthropology. It simply means the study of man as it relates to God. Every time this word comes up, Biblical Anthropology, it is basically looking at the history of mankind. Basically looks into the origin, the nature, and the destiny of humans and the universe by which it lives. Hence, our topic the last three weeks, one, is our purpose in creation as God's image bearers. That is very important. We will have a quick review in a moment. We will look at the fall because we want to be wiser. We need to learn from that, the schemes of the enemy, so the enemy will not outwit us. Now, it's not, of course, about our own good works, but it is all about the grace of God in our lives. But the third one, today we are going to look at the redemptive plan of God because God is a great plan for each and every single one of us. When He created us, He created us unique, the crown jewel of His creation. The Bible says we are God's worksmanship created in Christ, but sin came. So God put into effect a redemptive plan which we're going to talk about today to put us right back into His original plan for our lives. So evangelism is very important. It gets us saved from the fall, but only to put us back into God's original purpose. And this is why evangelism, discipleship, these are two very important ministries of our church. Evangelism gets us reconciled to God. Discipleship puts us in a place where we could be enabled to fulfill the purpose and the plans God for each and every single one of us. Amen? For our text today, we are going to look at primarily Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And then we are going to look at also verse 21 to 24. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Again, a grim reminder of the cost of disobedience. Very quick review. We're going to look, revisit, just in case any one of you might have missed out on any of these three lessons. We are going to have a quick zoom in on each of the weeks just to refresh our memory. The first one is we look at our purpose in creation. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 to 28, it spells out for us God's original intent and purpose for why God created us. 
But God creating us in His image communicate something very, very important. It communicates two very powerful truths. One of those is because we are created in the image of God, every human being is super, extremely valuable to God. You are not just valuable because you're influential or educated regardless of your background, regardless of your past lives. It doesn't matter how messed up or how great your life is. We are not defined by education, academics, physical looks, social connections. You are valuable for the simple fact that you are created in the very image of God. Even after the fall, you can take a thousand peso bill. You could crumple it. You could step on it. As long as it does not completely torn apart. You can take that same crumpled 1,000 peso bill. It does not become 200 value only because it's already crumpled. Or maybe it's now 100 because it diminished. Nothing. You can still use that and still it costs you 1,000 pesos. This is why the imprint of the image of God, no matter how people are marred with sin, they are still created in the image of God. And secondly, one of the very important facts is that because you are created in the image of God, you have purpose. And what is that purpose? That God promised to bless man so that he can subdue the earth. He can become a co-regent with God. That he could rule and reign under the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? That we should take charge. We should manage. We should govern. We are called to bring order where there is disorder. That we are called to co-labor with God in advancing His kingdom so that His dominion, His rulership, His government will be reflected in every sphere of human life. Some of you might think, but how can I do that, Pastor? I am not an influential person. Listen, you may not be president or barangay chairman. You may not be supervisor, manager of your company. But every single one of us have our spheres of influence. John Maxwell himself said that even the least of us will influence at least 10,000 people in our lifetime. Our lives are meant to impact. Start with those little groups where you have influence and bring the kingdom of God in those places. I want you to work with your families. Work with people that are closest to you. Because we cannot really make a greater impact on the world outside if we cannot even make an impact in our own small spheres. In fact, unless God govern our lives, we cannot govern ourselves. And we cannot impact our families unless we know how to govern ourselves. And we cannot impact bigger segments of society unless we learn to manage our own families. Amen? So it's a very important reminder for us. But this is what makes life exciting. That there is purpose for us. The Garden of Eden is an important reminder of the perfect fellowship that man had with God. Man live in a perfect world where there is peace, shalom, and harmony. Man with his creator, with his fellow men. And even with this environment. But when sin entered the world, that fellowship was severed and was broken. 
Genesis 2, 17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is the result of disobedience? Spiritual death. Meaning, alienation and separation from God. And what is worse? As the representative of the human race, Adam carried all men into his sin and ushered in death for all of humanity. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Now I don't know how familiar you are with National Geographic's air crash investigation. Now that's kind of absurd for a person like myself who's always half of my, third of my life is on the plane, right? But it's, sometimes it's just good to know how you can survive. <laughs> it's a TV series that examines the world's worst air disasters. And to be able to unlock some of the mysteries the major cause why the plane would crash. It is very essential that they find what we call the black box, although it's not really black, it's orange. But because to ascertain the cause of the flight, it records everything, the conversation prior to the crash, the altitude, the wind, speed, and all of that stuff, so that, you know, aviation authorities or or scientists could prevent further disasters. So the black box is very, very essential. As a segue to our study, our specific topic, which is the redemption of man, I want to take a quick look at the black box, at what caused the fall of man, what caused humanity to crush, what caused the sin that plunged us all into death. The first thing I want to look is in Genesis 3.1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very first cause that led to the crash of humanity is that there is a real enemy. There is a threat and that enemy is called the tempter, the deceiver, and the accuser. He come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And 2 Corinthians 2.11 warns us to not be ignorant or oblivious or naive over the schemes and the tactics of Satan that deceives and destroys people. Secondly, in Genesis 3.6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The second cause for this crash, for the fall, is disobedience. That come through the three temptations of sin, namely the loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, and the pride of life which we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Every sin ever committed is preceded by one of these three temptations. All of them fatal. But one thing we need to be watchful for is this sin called the pride of life. Because pride of life means being wise 
in one's eyes. Proverbs 14 verse 21 gives us this warning. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Pride itself doesn't want input. That's why humility brings grace from God. The Bible even says that a person who hates correction, the person who hates wisdom is stupid. We need to always be. It doesn't matter if you have high IQ. You are an extremely gifted, intelligent person in the natural. We cannot lean on our own understanding. We have to lean on the wisdom of God. Amen? To lead us constantly. In fact, as a wise thing, that if you are a smarter person, all the more you need to pray. Because you might rely on your own wisdom. Rely on your own strength. Always seek the wisdom of God. Thirdly, the fall of man happened when man abdicated his role, his responsibility, and his authority. Most men today, sadly, are apathetic, spiritually passive. They just simply watch on the sidelines. They have abdicated their God-given responsibility that would cost not only their lives, but their families today. The families are at the onslaught of the attack of the enemy partly because men have abdicated. They have been emasculated by the devil. I know this is not a men's meeting or Father's Day, but I need to say this. For those of you, especially fathers in this room, you are priests and gatekeepers of your family. There is an anointing God placed on you. You see, we are like the spiritual fathers of the church. We recognize that anointing. And in that anointing, we stand confident, not because we're educated, experienced, and trained, but we rely on that anointing. When we confront demonic forces, we don't stand on our experience. We stand on the authority of Christ. Men, fathers, have that same kind of anointing as well. God gave you that. If you have needs in your home and you ask us to pray, sure, we could pray. Sure, we could go there and pray. But there is not like anything, the prayer that comes from a father. When a father prays for his kids, for his wife, for provision, for healing, for miracles in their home, it's as if God had no choice but to answer that prayer. Because of the special anointing he put on fathers. Now you understand why there is such an attack against fatherhood. Against men to emasculate them. Because there's so much power that you yield. So very important that you understand. Because this is what Satan wants. Weak men. When I think about Eli and Saul and Korah and Ahab and Manasseh. To name only a few, they've led their entire family. It's not only their sin, it's their entire clans that were destroyed because of their abdicating their responsibility. Let's take a quick look now at the result of sin. There were three causes for sin, but now the result. Obviously, we mentioned the first one, spiritual death. It didn't take long for them to realize they lost their spiritual connection. Their rights, their privileges, their dominion, even their home. Which is why they were led out of the Garden of Eden. And God had to put a cherubim with a flashing sword so they would not be able to reach out to the tree of knowledge. A grim reminder of the consequence of sin. 
Second, this is in Genesis 3, 7. The eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It is no different today. The result of sin is what? A cover-up. And sometimes a sad reality, some of this cover-up are in the form of religion and good works. These are inadequate garments that they're trying to put flimsy Inadequate to cover their sin, their guilt, their shame with their self-righteousness. But Matthew 23, 28 reminds us in the same way on the outside. Take note of that. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Remember, man always look on outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6, it says all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. There is nothing wrong with righteous acts. Helping the poor, donating money to buy ambulance by faith. You know, these are good things, reading your Bible, doing good to the poor. But if we use these good works as fig trees to cover our guilt, to cover our shame, they become filthy rags before God because they are totally inadequate, insufficient. Thirdly, Genesis 3.8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The third result of sin is that they hid. Why? Because of guilt and embarrassment. I don't know if people realize this. Can man really hide from God? Well, the obvious answer is in Jeremiah 23, 24. Look how it is framed. Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth, says the Lord? God is everywhere. Anything and everything we do is seen by God. And this is amplified further in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must all give an account. Fourthly, Genesis 3:10, and He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here again, the result of sin, we see there was fear because they were naked. Adam said, I was afraid. That's fear and condemnation. He said, I was naked. That is shame and awkwardness. The moment they sinned in an instant, they felt ashamed. They felt scared. They knew something really went very, very, very wrong. And they were not just a little bit afraid. The original language implies they were terrified. They were terrified. You know what they could have done? They could have pretended. They could have. But they hid Because they were terrified of what happened. That sense of self-awareness, the knowledge that they are naked, forced them to hide. 
It's like they've never experienced anything like it before. And lastly, Genesis 3.12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. I call this victim mentality, of course, manifested in blame shifting and rationalization. Instead of taking responsibility, Adam himself pointed fingers to the woman God gave him. Pointing fingers might give you a reprieve for a moment. But the consequences will never go away. The consequences will still be there. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 15.21. It reminds me of Saul. Anointed by God as king of Israel. In fact, the first king. The description of him before that was amazing. Handsome. Tall above all others. In the natural, the makings of a great king. But he was unfaithful to God. The Lord told him to kill Agag and to destroy everything devoted for destruction. But what did he do? Because he feared people more than he feared the Lord. He gave this clumsy excuse to God. And what did he say? But Lord, it's the people. It's the people who took the spoils, the best sheep, and everything dedicated for destruction. It's them. Instead of just saying, God, I blew it. I'm so sorry. That irresponsibility, that abdication, that blame shifting cost Saul his kingdom. We can say the same for Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, isn't it? She said, it's the serpent who deceived me. Was she correct in saying that? Absolutely. She was deceived by the serpent. But did she take responsibility? She did not. She blame shifted. Guys, I tell you this. We could go so much in this life. If we are just humble enough to say, I blew it, Lord. I I'm responsible. I should do better next time. The grace of God will always be there. In fact, He always gives grace to those that humble themselves. So shifting blame never really works. Now we're going to look at God's response in redemption. Verse 9 of chapter 3 of Genesis. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, this is after they have committed the sin, where are you? God's first response in redeeming man is always to seek after him. This, my brothers and sisters, is the very heart of God. The unfortunate fact is this. That man, based on Romans chapter 10 verse 10, none is righteous no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. That's human nature. Left alone to ourselves, we would not want to have anything to do with God. But the good thing is, the good news is that Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the very heart of the gospel. Now you know why we go. Why we are aggressive in our missional outlook. 
why we go to the nations. Sometimes you might wonder, there are plenty of things we can do in our country. Why even go? Because this is the heart of God. This is why we go to the campuses, to offices. This is why we form our small groups to become outreach groups. We didn't create our small groups so we can fellowship to death forever with the same group of people. But so we can engage the lost. We can reach out to people that otherwise would not go to church but would find safe haven in going to our small groups. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went. You know, as opposed to other gods which only sits down and get themselves fat, our Jesus took the initiative to go. Not just to summon few. The Bible says he went to all the towns and villages, preaching in their synagogues, preaching the goodness of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. You want to bear fruit? You go and bear fruit. You don't bear fruit sitting down. We always have to embrace the call to go. All other religion is telling us to seek, to climb up trees like Zacchaeus did, to bridge the wide gulf of separation between us and God through our futile human efforts. But God is saying, stop your searching. Stop trying to save yourselves. It is for this reason I came to seek and to save the lost. That's why if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond to His invitation. Does God need us? He doesn't need any of us. But this is out of His love and compassion that He is reaching out to you and I because of His love for you. This is a one-way, almost a unilateral covenant. We didn't do anything to save ourselves. It's all God's. He did everything to save us. All because He loved us. The second response of God in redemption is in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God's second response in redemption was to save us. To save us. God's response was to remove the flimsy man-made garments which represented man's futile efforts. And clothe them with acceptable garments that he provided for us. Isaiah prophetically declared in Isaiah 61, 10. I will worship the Lord. And for time's sake, I'll just read to you the middle part. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Christianity is not just about what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. Our acceptability to God is not our flimsy fig tree to cover our shame and guilt and condemnation. It is putting on the garments of Christ. Our righteousness is His. I am righteous not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's the blood on the doorpost of the house. So when the spirit of death come, it overpasses. It passed over the house, not because people there are righteous, but because of the righteousness that is in the blood of Jesus. Amen? So we are confident in that fact. But for this to happen, innocent animals had to die so that man's fellowship 
with God will be fully restored. This again is a picture of an act of the mercy of God. Do you know what is the first ever recorded physical death in the Bible? It is not the slaying of Abel by his older brother Cain. It is the animals that God had to kill in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, guilt, and shame. In Hebrews 9, 22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. However, this action, I must clarify, is temporary and can only provide ritual purification. All this animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, that's why with all due respect to all the messianic movements, where they long for the day when the animal sacrifice will be restored. Are you kidding me? That was a foreshadowing. It only cleanses us ritually so that we can enter into the presence of God and be accepted by God because we are covered by an innocent blood that died for us but it cannot take away our spiritual and moral guilt. Because it tells us in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this act foreshadowed God's perfect atonement that was going to come in its final conclusion through the person of the perfect and sinless Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. A picture of what Jesus did for sinners when he died on the cross for a sinful world. Only Jesus' perfect and sinless sacrifice could solve the real problem of our spiritual and moral guilt. And those of us under the new covenant that have accepted Christ, all you need to do when you sin is say, God, I'm sorry. You don't have to go and buy some dove if you're so poor or a sheep to cover your sin for that week. But the blood of Jesus, once for all, perfect blood, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean we tolerate sin. We have to repent for every sin we commit and appropriate the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And if you find yourself committing the same sins again and again and again, then you need victory weekend. So that addiction in your life could be broken. You are not meant anymore to be a slave of sin when the Spirit of God rules and reigns in your life. Amen? We're not, I'm not talking about a perfect life. I'm talking about a life that is no longer a slave of sin. We still get angry. We still lose our temper and we need to repent. Sometimes we compromise. We rationalize things and we, God convicts us. We repent. We appropriate the blood of Jesus but not anymore a slave to sin. Because if you're a slave, I've got good news for you. Just go victory weekend. Go meet with one of our pastors. Meet with your small group leader. Amen? So you can walk free. This is your inheritance in Christ. St. Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus who had no sin, that's why he's sinless and perfect, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's final and ultimate response for our redemption was to promise and send 
the ultimate Savior, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15 is a preview of the incarnate Christ. Genesis palang. He is already promised the Messiah, the Redeemer, has already been promised to purchase our redemption. This is called Protevangelium, meaning the first gospel proclamation. This created an expectation of a coming Redeemer. This also provides the first biblical glimpse of Satan's ultimate defeat when Jesus would finally cross Satan's head by raising from the dead. The phrase, you will strike his heel, refers to Satan's repeated attempts to defeat Jesus while he was on earth. Remember the killing of the babies? Because he wanted to kill the future Savior. He did not succeed, so he tried to tempt him in the wilderness, remember? But then he also did not succeed. So he finally gave Jesus a death blow at Calvary's cross. And he thought he crushed the heel of the Savior. It's the other way around. It's almost like putting a nail on Satan's head and he hammered it on himself. He got trapped in his own pit. He did not know what was going to come. He did not realize the man he put to death had no sin. The power of sin is over death. This is what makes Jesus different from any religious leader in the world. That the Savior we worship is a perfect sinless Son of God. And the only one who has the power to defeat death. That's why on the third day he had to rise from the dead. So that you and I, my brothers and sisters, no matter how much we failed in this life. No matter how much sin we've committed. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. One day you die, but you will never die because you will live again because I am the resurrection and the life. I hold the keys of death and hell. Our righteousness is not of ourselves and our own doing. It's the righteousness of Christ that covers us. Amen? This is why this is such good news. A strike on the heel is not deadly. What Satan did to Jesus that seemed like he crushed his head, he only barely scratched his heel. But what the resurrection of Jesus crushed the head of Satan. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace, not even the God of warfare, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love this verse. You know why? It's not just Jesus will crush the devil. We are part of his body and fortunately the feet is part of the body. We are part of his warfare. We are part of his victory. God is the control center but the feet is the one that crush Satan's head. And I'll read to you a verse that Satan hates most. In all the scripture in the whole Bible, Revelation 12, 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. You think who that ancient serpent is? That the one manifested in Genesis 3? Who is the devil and Satan 
and bound him for a thousand years, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever just as eternal life is forever and ever living with Jesus forever and ever. This is torment forever and ever and ever and ever. Be smart. Choose life. Choose God. Choose the way of Jesus. Because this series started by looking at the first Adam, I want to make a quick contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam, who is Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Adam was a living person, meaning that he was given life, but Jesus is a life-giving spirit, which means he gives life. Adam is natural of the earth. Jesus is spiritual of heaven. In Adam, all die in Christ. All shall be made alive. Are people all alive today? Not yet. That's why we have to tell them the good news. But only for those who receive and believe will He give them the right to become children of God. And how can they hear unless we preach to them? We have a responsibility. Adam's one act of sin produced death, judgment, and condemnation. But Christ's one act of obedience produced grace, free gift, righteousness. It enabled us to reign in this life, experience justification, and inherit life for all men. Hallelujah. It is perfectly summarized in this verse, Romans 5. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Since we are looking at our story of redemption, I want to show you a glimpse of the blessings that this redemption brings to all of us. The word to redeem means to buy back. And I want to remind you, though it is free, it costs Jesus' very life. This is what Jesus purchased for you and I for our redemption, eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, righteousness, freedom from the laws, curse, adoption into God's family, deliverance from sin's bondage, peace with God, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Meaning to be redeemed means to be forgiven, made holy, justified, freed, adopted, reconciled, empowered. Come on, give the Lord a big hand for that. I'd like to conclude by just reading you two more verses. Ephesians 1, 17, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of His grace, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which is set forth in Christ. And in John 3, 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The ultimate question as I close for all of you here, brothers and sisters. Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God? If you are confident to say yes, I put my complete faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Then everything, all the benefits I just mentioned to you are all yours in Christ. Eternal life, righteousness, justification, all of these things. But if you haven't, I know this is a scary thought, but it says, the wrath of God remains on you. 
If you hear God's voice today, make a wise choice. Choose life. Choose Jesus. It's for free. Embrace it by faith. God has a great plan and purpose for your life. The first step is to get you reconciled to God. Christianity is not boring because God has a unique divine design that no one else could fulfill but you. And I want to remind you, God wants to save you. Not just because of you, but because there are people around you. Family, relatives, friends, workmates, classmates. They too, God desire to come to know Him. God desires that none should perish, but everyone to come to repentance. His desires that salvation reaches the very ends of the earth. Lord, I speak your blessing on everyone that is here today. Thank you for the privilege of once again reminding us of the great salvation you've given us through Jesus. The great redemption, the cost, the price you had to pay for our salvation and redemption. Father God, thank you for the great salvation my brothers and sisters have experienced. Thank you, Lord God. I could see it in their faces. Lord, thank you for encouraging us today. But more than that, I pray that as we come out of this place, remind us that we are witnesses. We have been empowered to be witnesses. May we not keep this good news just to ourselves. Help us to extend our spheres of influence and bring this to our families, to our relatives, to our workplaces, to our school, to wherever you bring us, wherever you lead us, that we might, Lord God, share the goodness of salvation to people everywhere we go. Lord, I just speak grace on your people today. Thank you, Lord, for the honor and the privilege of knowing you and being a witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say, Amen.